fortune is yours, dear listener. You have wandered into yet another episode of The Learning Curve, or TLC, as I've been calling it occasionally in my internal uh, emails to the folks. I'm joined by the great Kara Kendall, who is somewhere hiding in an undisclosed location. Kara, uh, how are you today? No, I'm back. I was off, but uh, but I'm back. And I'm, um, uh, yeah, I'm saying that I'm in an undisclosed location, not necessarily okay. hiding. Yeah, but no, all is good. Uh, I'm, maybe I'm in an undisclosed location. Okay. But uh, but the, but nevertheless, the podcast is exploding in, in popularity. I feel it's doing very well. Everyone's talking about Can you go anywhere, Kara, now? Or I, are I, you, I can barely go to the supermarket. Know, you're, right. you're holed in, like they'll say, like I'm a lone gunman in a bank make vault. Sure or whatever. I put my makeup in case people recognize me. It's horrible. Yeah, which is on a podcast is amazing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, we are surging in the Learning Curve podcast. And we want to, no, seriously, we want to thank the listeners and the great responses we've gotten so far. Uh, and so that includes you for listening to this right now. So thank you very much. We have a great. Thanks, program. Mom, for listening. Yes, and to, uh, to uh, Kara's mom. We have a great program lined up later in this show. Uh, Wilfred McClay will be Kara's guest. Uh, he is with the University of Oklahoma. But also the author of a book called Land of Hope and Innovation to the Great American Story. Uh, I was that was a pre-recorded interview. I wasn't uh, I wasn't available for that because I was traveling. But Kara, you did a great interview that and we that's coming up a little later in the show. And we're looking forward to it. It's it's a good listen, I hope. All right, so let's hit some of the news. We begin with, uh, you know, I know we talked about Chicago's upcoming Im- imminent teacher strike last week, but there's just more news. This is not exactly about that as much, but a, a 74 story about a report. The report came from Dan DeSalvo. He's a professor of political science at City College of New York, and he argues that the burden of pensions and benefits for current and future teacher retirees is crowding out other spending on current teachers. In other words, instead of paying for library books and teacher bonuses or desks or textbooks or, uh, you know, the playground equipment, he writes and, and, and cites evidence that states are devoting more resources to pay the health care costs and pensions of teachers who have long since retired. He calls it the hidden drivers of educational spending and strikes. He also links this to a hidden driver of teacher strikes. Why? Because we can't pay as much for salaries as we would because of this mushrooming pension benefit. I call this the crouching tiger hidden dragon of education spending. He calls it hidden drivers. But nevertheless, uh, look, the teacher unions have advocated for years for pensions and platinum level health care benefits over salaries. And whenever we get someone proposing a pension reform, like Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin did last year, people freak out and say, you know, 20 counties across Kentucky all had, suddenly, had, suddenly had sick outs saying, don't you touch our pensions? And they'll say, in those moments, we agreed to take lower salaries because we knew these pensions would be here. Okay, well, okay. But then, if you table that and then turn to these other conversations like Chicago's having now about what salaries should be, what happens in so much in the media, the media often doesn't talk about this platinum level health care benefits and these pension, guaranteed pension benefits when the teacher strike stories come up. Then it's a 100% conversation about salaries only, and they ignore things like the pensions and like the summers off. What do you think? I think exactly, Bob. And I think we've seen this move 
movie before, right? So as somebody that grew up right outside the great city of Detroit (laughs) and watched this happen to the auto industry, I mean, this is what aren't we learning here, folks? And I think it's also really important for us to think about um, the lack of transparency that happens in most states and most cities around what teachers are paid versus benefits versus per pupil spending. So in states that really are transparent about this and do a good job of separating out what, what they're actually, what states and districts are actually spending on teacher pensions, what states and districts are actually spending on classroom expenses, how much is going to teacher salary, then we have a much better understanding of the total cost of keeping talent in the classroom. And and look, this is a huge problem because we know that I wouldn't say we have a teacher shortage in this country. What we have is a shortage of highly qualified folks, and they don't want to go into the profession for some of these reasons. You're having to make choices. And this crowding out is masking um, the, the fact that we need to be able to pay teachers better salaries now. We need to be able to attract the right people into the classroom. So it has huge ramifications beyond what we're already seeing as the unsustainable cost that so many districts, especially large urban districts, I'm sitting here in Boston, right? We we know that the system's going to collapse, are facing. And we have to think to the future. And unfortunately, we're not doing it. I think that this is a really important report. And the media doesn't cover, they almost don't cover this part of it. They really almost, especially when the teacher strikes come. Let me tell you just two quick secrets that just between you and me, Kara, and our and our listeners, and so my the mom. listeners, and your mom, all the li- where everyone is sworn to secrecy because this I say it's a secret because it's hardly mentioned in the media. Number one, as of 2013, the CTPF Chicago Teachers Pension Fund became what's called actuarially upside down. More beneficiaries than contributors in the Chicago Teacher Pension Fund. As of, that was back in 2013, that happened. They now have an even larger imbalance, meaning even more of an imbalance with more beneficiaries than contributors. That's secret number one. Secret number two is how is their pension calculated? Well, it's the average of the four highest consecutive years within their final 10 years of teaching. They look at the average of those four highest years, tend to be basically the last four years of their teaching career, and they average that, and that becomes the basis for their pension. Well, guess what? The people that sign these deals, the governors, or if it's a statewide strike or, or mayors or whatever, they do these deals, okay? They are, everyone knows, they're going to be long gone from office. They're by the time the can right down the road. By the time these chickens come home to roost. And so, oh, sure, I'll, I'll do this deal. And they give the, and, and they figure out just the maximum salary increase they can pay for with, hey, shh, don't tell anybody, but that's also jacking up new pension obligations because the pensions are calculated based on the salaries that those people in office today just increased who won't be in office by the time the pension thing hits. Anyway, all right, so moving on to story number two. This is uh, from the LA Times, and it's about San uh, San Diego Unified paying $2 million to settle 128 due process cases. Now, 
This is a thing that I've spent far more time on. I'm embarrassed to say how much time I've spent on this issue, considering I, I've not made it very productive time as of yet. But for those who don't know, there's something called the IDEA federal law, Individuals uh, with Disabilities Education Act, where whereby uh, students who uh, have disabilities, if those students are not being adequately educated in their local public school, can receive and, – and either the school district admits that or the parents make the case – uh, public money will go to pay for those students to attend private school. So government money will pay for the private education of spe- certain special needs students. And you're like, oh, you mean like a voucher or like Are education savings account? Are you talking about a voucher, Bob? Yeah, yeah right, right. The, no, actually, no. Like this is this is this is all cut states with no voucher plans. This is as usual. This is the law. <laughs> this is all fifty states. So I live in New Jersey. Has there's no private school. Uh, uh, private private school choice plan in New Jersey. No vouchers. No, no educate. Nothing. No tax credit scholarship. This it's all fifty states. It doesn't. You don't. It's not a voucher plan. It's like a, it's what we call kind of a secret voucher, where it is something that's rarely talked about, and it's also far. The, the difference the distinction though is that it's far more unfair than a normal voucher. Why? Because the parents that get access to this kind of government support for private school tend to be the wealthier parents. They have to hire consultants to make the case that their son or daughter needs private school education. They hire lawyers to go to court. They have court cases where judges make decisions over which kids are going to get the uh, government money to pay for their private school education. We did, and just, I know I'm I'm filibustering, but just to wrap this up, we did, we just looked at New Jersey and we looked at, uh, we we, we did a Freedom of Information Act request for four years worth of data in 20 school districts. This has not been released anywhere, by the way, yet. But we did 20 school districts, four years worth of data. And what we found was these numbers were stunning. It actually, if you looked at the total amount spent statewide on this kind of secret voucher, IDEA-based spending of, of districts paying for private school education of special needs kids, it would be the second largest school district in the state if aggregated, over – $800 million a year going to this, uh, you know, pushing toward a billion dollars a year going to this program that a lot of people never even heard of. And and yet and so and, and yet it's it's you know, if, if there were simply something like a, a McKay scholarship, which is a Florida special needs based voucher, other states have special needs targeted vouchers. Georgia does. Oklahoma does. Uh, Arizona has a special needs targeted education savings account. Uh, There's far more fair because you don't need to have the money to hire consultants and lawyers to get it. Go ahead, Carrie. Yeah, and you don't have to have the social capital to figure out that we have this super secret law in the first place. So I think you're absolutely right that this is like almost everything in our system of of education weighted toward those who have a leg up in life, weighted toward those who've had the privilege of, of an education and weighted toward the white wealthy, quite frankly. And I don't know, Bob, if you have ever, I um, had to fill out IEP paperwork for one of my children a couple of years ago. And I well, won't say exactly where I live, but it was in a very good public school district, a place where my, my child would get amazing services. But the process of going through just the state paperwork sure. to get these services was absolutely the most ridiculous experience. I have more degrees than I care to even think about because I know that many degrees and I had trouble doing it and forget it. Let me tell you something. Forget it. If your child happens to speak another language. 
My children this, this, are bilingual. And once I had to check that box that said they speak a language other than English at home, I was done for. I was done for. And I have the ability to navigate the system. But I think to your point, what this is revealing, the, the fact that so many wealthy parents are in fact using this back road to get a better quality of education for their children tells us exactly what we're going to talk about and probably near the end of the show, that it is time for everybody to have access to the schools that are the best fit for their kids. It's a complete, and you're right about every every um, child needing something like a McKay scholarship and that we're seeing increasingly these come up in different states. And it's time for us to elevate the conversation on it's, this, it, just it, like it, you're doing today, my friend. It's and all, and it's, all, it's such a, it's, aware. it's such, it's, it's one of the most politically easy. I mean, if you're advocating I'd love for, to hear Elizabeth Warren talk about this, if you're, you know, if you're advocating for parents with special needs kids, I mean, it, it, there's a humorous thing a few years ago where, where the uh, Oklahoma Education Association, the Teachers Union in Oklahoma, actually sued the parents of special needs kids. They picked the most sympathetic population on earth to sue, which is the parents <laughs> of special needs kids who wanted a better education for their kids. And the Teachers Union lost. They didn't just lose in court. They lost in the court of public opinion, which no kidding, you know, like a uh, surprise that would happen. But uh, no, the, the, the world of special needs education, of course, is also loaded with jargon and intricacy. And to have an ordinary parent navigate that, you know, is, uh, you know, and, and just one last caveat. Of course, there are some districts that are are not stingy with, they're not unfair about, you know, uh, we, we interviewed people. Uh, some districts do a great job with special ed. It's a huge cost to districts, but in yeah, some they, sense, we need to rethink that whole system. Yeah, they know? don't all fight parents from getting this not kind of IDEA uh, private school placement, but, but, but many do. Okay. And the third a story on our uh, rule of three here uh-huh. from the Boston Globe, this is a uh, Kara's country. Uh, <laughs> and we're we are we are sort of like our own country up here. In I don't country. even please. I don't even know what you are anymore. You grew up in Michigan and you lived in Chicago and uh, you know and I'm an interesting woman in undisclosed locations and then now you're in Massachusetts. <laughs> anyway, uh, I hear about the Boston Globe. It reminds me when Bill Burr talks about being a Boston paper boy and he I delivered the Globe and the Herald. Anyway, um, but anyway, the Boston Globe story about uh, uh, Mayor Elorza in Providence, Rhode Island, saying oh. he's prepared to support a high-performing achievement-first charter schools plan to open additional elementary schools. And this was a story that you know we we put in our, our Choice Media Newswire, yep. and I, I was like, oh, okay, great, about a thousand new seats at achievement yep. charter. It's a highly troubled Providence charter school. No kidding. Of course, they need more options. But that's great. But then they say, but then. We find out the mayor was going to ask the state to limit the expansion of other charter schools in Providence. And I'm like, huh? And then I get this paragraph. This is the maybe Kara can explain this paragraph. The, and I'll, I'll just read this from the Globe. The mayor said he will inform Achievement First Board of Directors, which he chairs, of his proposal at a meeting Monday morning. He said the plan has the support of the governor, but it must be approved by the state council on, on elementary and secondary education. So wait, wait, he chairs the achievement first charter board of directors, and that's the only charter he's approved expanding. But if you're on a charter school in Providence, not with the mayor on the board, you don't get the mayor's approval well, for expanding. Am I understanding this right? Is he on the board of directors because he's on the board of directors or because of some legal rigmarole in bringing Achievement First to Providence? I mean, Achievement First already has schools in 
Providence, I believe. But I'm, oh, I, no, I, we do. It's an expansion of an existing yes. uh, footprint in Providence. It's a uh, thousand new seats. But I just thought to myself, wait, wait. So well, what? We should just be surprised by this guy. He's on the <laughs> board of the only. I love that he's expanding Achievement First. I love Achievement First. But, but it's it's a, what you're. You don't get to expand if I'm not on your board. Well, you don't. I mean, how on earth if is I'm that? on your board? And also politically, for me, it doesn't really look good to say, "Yay, let's have more charters." Because I don't know. That's what seems to work for kids, especially in these situations. I mean, listen. So first of all, thank you, Mr. Mayor, for bringing for expanding Achievement First. Because like, let's let's own it. Achievement First is a phenomenal organization doing a lot of good for a lot of kids, and I'm sure can make a huge impact on Providence if granted more seats. But also, by even suggesting that we're not going to let in other operators, by even suggesting that we wouldn't bring in new blood, new ideas to turn around what we've talked about out on this podcast before, is just an abysmal situation in the city of Providence, is absolutely offensive. And also, yeah. let's just go one step further and say, how about you take a few lessons from some of your neighbors around the block here, that once you start shutting out innovative schools, once you start shutting out options for parents, you, you either stagnate. I mean, listen, Providence can't go down much further, but it ain't going to get much better, right? Of all so, the districts of the country. Where, yay, if you have access to achievement first and sorry too bad if you don't doesn't work of all the districts in the country say like oh man it's it's so desperate here we clearly need more options but let's just try to make it only one like oh we'll just have one other kind of option (laughs) because there's really only one kind of kid that might need other options sounds like the rest of the country (laughs) but i'm just saying like this is the argument that we get right from from those who want to keep the educational status quo forever that one size should fits all let's just let in one it's a similar lines except he's just acknowledging that hey this is my this is my org so we'll bring it on in and also i have to make this concession because this really bad report came out and i'm getting lots of bad press it's just not a good look and it's not a good thing for kids that is the news of the week coming up next my colleague kara kendall's chat with wilford mcclay Well, in our first month of the learning curve, we have been so lucky to have some really heavy hitters as guests, and this week is absolutely no exception. Today, joining us is Professor Wilfred M. McClay. He is the GT and Libby Blankenship Chair in the History of Liberty at the University of Oklahoma and the Director for the History of Liberty. He's authored several books, including his most recent one, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story, and he's here to speak with us about that book today. He's a graduate of St. John's College and received his Ph.D. in history from the Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you, Kara. It's very nice to be here. Well, we are really excited to have you with us today um, to talk about your latest book. Um, you've had, you know, several really important thinkers have reviewed this book. And then and one of them um, tells us that at a time of severe partisanship that has infected many accounts of our nation's past, this is a brilliant new history written in lucid and often lyrical prose that is much needed. So I'm so excited to hear you talk to us today about why you wrote this book and specifically about the audience. So this is a book intended, a history book intended for high school students. Can you talk a little bit about about that, about about your audience and why why this book right now for this audience? 
Well, I, yes, I, and, and thank you for having me. I'm really very, very pleased. And, uh, and I have to tell you, the quote that you read uh, was from the historian Gordon Wood, whom anybody who knows the field of history knows that that's very high praise coming from probably the most eminent living historian of the United States. So I, I thrill every time I hear hear that, that uh, those words. Uh, I'm, I'm planning to have them on my epitaph. <laughs> um, there's a number of reasons why I did it, but um, part of it was stemming from the feeling that the existing textbooks um, are, are simply not neither reflective of the full uh, amplitude of our history um, that they concentrate on on kind of victimization narratives and that sort of thing. Or more importantly than that, they're just so poorly written. They are, they are abominably badly written. And part of that has to do with the process by which textbooks are assembled. They're, they're not um, the product of the mind of an author or even a group of authors. They're really a product assembled in one of the three major uh, textbook publishers, Pearson, uh, McGraw-Hill, and uh, uh, Harcourt uh, are the big three now. And, uh, um, and they just, they, 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 uh, they do the, the, the equivalent of uh, focus groups uh, with um, stakeholder groups, with organizations that are likely to say, hey, there's not enough of us in there, or we don't like your account of this, or whatever. So they, they tailor um, textbooks to fit the demands of tech, textbook adoption committees, which are very political. And, uh, so it's not so much, I expected when I launched into this and I got a hold of all the existing textbooks, I expected to find a sort of ideological bias, a la, you know, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. And even more, I just find things that are unreadable and that um, it's no wonder that young people don't want to read history. I wouldn't want to read it either. Yeah, it sounds like the reputation of history as is rather dry has been well earned by the by the industry itself, right? I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. Well, tell me a little oh. bit about. So you mentioned you mentioned this um, concern um, that some have that history is often taught, you know, um, in the service of, of different interest groups or that or through specific ideological lens. But we we do have, you know, very thorny, very dark chapters in our history, very difficult things to deal with, as as well as as things to celebrate uh, um, about American history and and our culture. But can you talk a little bit about how you handle the those thornier parts of history that we have to yes. teach students about. How do, how do you think about that? Well, let me let me answer you this this way. Um, that one of the things that has taken me by surprise and taken my publisher uh, Encounter Books by surprise a bit is just how well the book is sold. It, it's been kind of phenomenal, and I think there's a hunger in the country. Um, for an account of our past that is honest, that's honest about our failings, our faults, our um, the ways that we've fallen short of our own ideals. Um, there, they, they, you, I don't think you can wish those away, and I don't. But what I think is also needed is an account that places them into proper perspective. Uh, in other words, you can... Um, you can Make, you can make the error of simply airbrushing everything 
displeasing. But you can also go to the opposite extreme and make the, the mistake of saying that only those say, you know, it's not only uh, warts and all, but nothing but warts. <laughs> and I think that's really uh, bordering on ridiculous and, and, and certainly ill-founded, not something that uh, I think it makes for the proper historical perspective. There's something in the middle. And I've, I've tried to place myself in the middle. And uh, I think people are um, appreciate that. I think that's one of the reasons we have run so many readers right off the bat, more than I expected. I think, as I said, there is a hunger in the country for a balance in perspective that slavery, just, just to dwell on that for a moment, um, slavery is a stain on our path, but it's not a uniquely American stain. Uh, the United States uh, of America did not invent slavery. The, the British settlers um, in, in the Western Hemisphere did not invent slavery. You know, the, let's put this into perspective. We we had uh, this institution come into our national life uh, in contradiction to our professed ideals, and we it took us a while to um, to get rid of it. We should never forget about it. Yeah, I hear you calling for a more, for not only a more balanced view, but a more, but a longer view and a more contextualized view of history. More, something that that students can think critically about. And to that to that point about teaching our students to think critically and in teaching them the importance of context and and that you know each story uh, has more than one side. We can look at things from many different angles. Um, we know, as I'm sure you know, that for years. Um, the state of history in this country as measured by test scores. Now, not a perfect measure, mm-hmm. but as measured yeah. by test scores show again and again, NAEP civic scores have shown for years that U.S. history and civics remain in what some would consider a perilous state. So to yeah. your point, uh, maybe history is too bland. Maybe maybe it's um, it's not interesting to students and maybe that is the fault of, of certain textbook companies. But what, what else is going on here? Why is it not only that so many many students don't um, don't have this more balanced, contextualized, long view of history. But why do so many of them simply not have exposure to history at all? Well, uh, you know, I, I there are a lot of reasons. It, it, it is a subject that that are not that's hard to make them fun. It's, so that's what I've tried to do. I've tried to restore the idea of history as a story, um, and not a not a fairy tale. But as a narrative, as something that unfolds like a narrative, and that's in, that's in the title of my book. There's nothing that that small children love more, uh, as a mother of three young children, love oh, yes. more than a good story. So it really causes one to wonder where where we lose that narrative power along the way <laughs> in school. Well, you know, we do. We we we. I think we're suffering from, and have been for a while, uh, from a kind of crisis of. Of unbelief, of 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 unbelief in the decency, the fundamental decency of of our institutions and of our history. I'm all for examining history critically. If you're teaching American history, learning American history solely with a, a focus on these kinds of things, or these are the first questions that come up: What about Native Americans? What about slavery? Um, the, then Students don't learn about things like why the Constitution came about and formed it. What were the various um, 
preliminary attempts to arrive at a national government. What were the debates over the Constitution about? <clears throat> how, how might those debates be relevant to us today? Uh, they, they don't learn about uh, American involvement in the Second World War, the First World War. They don't learn even about the Civil War. They, they, uh, they're inclined to think that because we have stains on our national life, that that's all they need to know. And that's, that, that's actually an excuse not to know more. That the yeah, national life becomes something to be dis- dismissible. It's quite fraught, especially when the majority of teachers in this country are white and um, and increasingly they have children of color in their in their classrooms. Right. And so I think that this is I think from the teacher perspective, from the educator perspective, this is something that really occupies the national mind right now, especially in K to 12 education is how do we talk about these things and how do we talk about these things in a way that doesn't take away agency uh, from the people who might relate to it most? And how do we how do we think through this narrative in a way that's respectful to all parties, yet at the same time getting getting at truth, getting at it? At, at, yes, at, yes. Well, I mean, yeah. Go, go ahead. Let me interrupt your, your your. No, I think just to your point. But the follow up question here is, Dr. McClay, is so if there is um, a story, a narrative, a chapter, a moment, or maybe even a hero or heroine uh, in the book um, that really resonates with you. What or who is it? Well, I, I don't know that I could give you one, but I, what I do want to emphasize is that the title, Land of Hope, is, is, the, uh, is the first thing I wrote. I, I, authors usually write their titles last. In this case, I wrote my title first. Uh, I kind of knew what I wanted the organizing theme or one of the principal organizing themes of the book to be. And, and this is what I mean by it. Um, uh, that is, that one need not be confined or consigned to the, the, the circumstances of one's birth, but that there, there is always the possibility through enterprise, through ingenuity, through you know, luck and audacity, um, through agency, to use your word, uh, that we can better ourselves. We can better our lot in the world. It is a celebratory book. I mean, I, I love the United States and I wanted to write a a textbook that reflected that, but I, but I, it's not an unqualified celebration at all. Sure, hope, hope, and despair sometimes two sides of the same coin. But you are yes. bringing hope, hopefully, to the to the millions of of school children who will read this book. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you today. Oh, thank you, Kara. Uh, the title of the book again, Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story. And, and I assume we can get this on Amazon. Is there, is there anywhere else we should visit to find yeah, out? Yeah, I mean, in counter, counter books, uh, the publisher can, can get it on their website, uh, Barnes and Noble. It, it's actually in most of the Barnes and Noble stores around the country. I don't know about independent stores, but I do know. Fantastic. Well, hopefully in some great independent bookstores as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope to have you back uh, when you write your next book, Dr. Well, I would love that. Thank you. (laughs) Wonderful. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
All right, welcome back. This is the commentary of the week, and I picked one from Rachel Tripp, who's described as a Young Voices contributor for the Washington Examiner from D.C. I don't know how young Rachel Tripp is, but the commentary that I selected was titled, The Secretary of Education Doesn't Have to Be a Public School Teacher, and those following the uh, the well, the primaries. No primaries haven't started yet, but the debates in the Democratic Party, uh, presidential debates and whatnot, uh, probably may know that Elizabeth Warren, who I think is going to be the nominee at this point, has said, uh, you know, promised to make her education secretary, a former school teacher, and so this is a piece uh, that kind of contradicts that theory, saying uh, no, the secretary of education doesn't have to be a public school teacher. And what I tweeted this week to quote the great me. And this is what I, as I said, Rachel Tripp is right, except she doesn't go far enough. It's actually better if the secretary of education isn't a former public school teacher for precisely the same reason the secretaries of defense aren't military generals or admirals from the Pentagon, because objectivity is more important than cronyism. And I think that analogy applies. But put it this way. If someone tells me that the secretary of education has to be a public school teacher, uh, my first question is, does that mean the secretary of defense should be from the Pentagon? Because I want to know their thoughts on on objectivity in this space. And 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 and, and please, in my view, the space of education is already insular enough in the way that so many, so often uh, people who work for school districts dominate the voting and school board elections and people who work for school districts show up and give grief to mayors and protests when things happen, like you know, collective bargaining disagreements and whatnot. They have an oversized special influ- special interest influence as it is, and so to me to say like, no, let's make that even more even more s- let the sort of internal industry people run everything about it. It was an unhealthy direction. That objectivity is a healthier direction and that the secretary of education, you know, look, I'm not so convinced, please. We only became the most richest, most powerful country in the world without any federal department of education. But that said, uh, you know, a lot of people could read before there was any um, federal department of education. But that said, uh, in my view, if there is going to be one, objectivity is better than cronyism. Kara, what do you think? I gotta say, I'm not going to go so far as cronyism. I think that you can absolutely, I'm going to go to John King, right? Former Secretary of Education. John King started out as a school teacher right here in Boston, I have to say. Um, you, you can be a strong, good Secretary of Education and not resort to cronyism if you have experience in public education. However, I agree with you that you don't, that, listen, when no. should, should, the Secretary, should the Secretary of Defense be an admiral or a general? I don't know. I have to, you know, Bob, I'd have to give that a little bit more thought. I'm not going to say that it's okay if, if, if he or she isn't, but um, what I think the bigger point here, and, and this is, listen, Liz Warren's our, my senator, great state of Massachusetts, and I agree with a lot of what she says, but when it comes to education, this is just absolutely pandering. This is red meat. This is, let's, and 
this is piling on uh, Betsy DeVos. This is an anti-school choice agenda. And it's a really easy thing to get out there and say. And it's really hard for people to say, we don't like teachers. I will also say, as a former professor in a school of education, here's a little secret. Schools of education do a terrible job teaching teachers about policy. Too often, teachers think of policies as something that happens to them because they are too busy doing the day-to-day work of actually educating kids in the classroom. There are great examples of organizations that are helping to engage teachers in policy, like Teach Plus. There are great examples of many teachers. Sydney Chafee right here, former Massachusetts Teacher of the Year, Teacher of the Year, um, former National Teacher of the Year from Massachusetts, excuse me, um, with with excellent policy expertise. So you can have it both ways. But to say by default that the Secretary of Education has to be a public school teacher is on its face, just absolutely. And you say the schools of education are weak on policy. I, I have like a, you know, the, the number, number of, of the number of uh, of college students who major in education and finish with a bachelor's degree in education that have had any courses or, or even heard talks from charter school leaders or heard about school choice policy as a policy matter is a rounding error. I mean, you know, I, when no, I no, say this, yeah, my friends, you're, you're not allowed to talk about it. It's, it's, I, I know, it's because I used to. It says it's, it's forbidden. My friends at the University of Arkansas always pipe up and say, wait a minute. We, well, okay. now at University of Arkansas, you can't. I know. But they're just a whole different breed. We're not, yeah. So forget about that for a second. Yeah, like that, I'm not attacking them. Everybody, everybody else. But anyway, uh, there's a, yeah. So so. Well, listen. Mix. But speaking of Arkansas, right? Speaking of University of Arkansas and the crew, it brings us, I think, to the tweet of the week, if I may. Because not that they're in Arkansas, but uh, the tweet of the week that we've chosen should be near and dear to the hearts of our friends in Arkansas, and that is um, it's a tweet from Neil McCluskey at Cato. And oh, that was a torture transition. So it's actually not about Arkansas. <laughs> it's not about Arkansas. Well, if you let me finish, see. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the, our yeah. friends in Arkansas will love this because the new Cato <laughs> poll finds that 58% of Americans favor vouchers for K-12 private school. So back to our conversation at the beginning of this podcast, um, you know, Americans, when when it's actually put to them in real terms, like, hey, would you like your taxpayer dollars to go to a school that you actually think works for your kids, that the majority of us actually favor it? And not surprisingly, those who favor it most are disproportionately low-income Americans of color who yeah. don't have access to the yes. strong public schools that their kids deserve. So absolutely no surprise there. But it's this is one of those things that I'm, I can't believe. It's like I'm almost turning into Bob. I don't think <laughs> national media is going to pick it up. But oh, we yeah. can talk about it here. On the well, I have a, I have a secret theory, which is really more w- wishful thinking. Oh, uh, secrets. I know I got I mean, secrets are actually the wrong adjective. It's just it's more. This is more wishful thinking. But I like to say it like it's actually some sort of truth because I wish it so much. But here here's. Um, um, but forget about that. I'm just going to call it a truth now just to go back to my original so here's my here's here's my truth uh all right here's my secret truth i'll work that back in is that the now reason, i'm a little frightened okay, shh, the reason why I'm, I'm whispering the reason why a lot more democrats are now supporting private school choice in these surveys we're seeing like voucher surveys and stuff why because they started hearing about something called uh uh, uni- of UBI, universal basic income, 
you you have you have this idea of like you know it's, it's an even leftier idea than protecting you know public schools from draining resources to private uh, education. Even leftier than that is universal basic income, where you give people money to just live from the government, yeah, right? I so love it. This guy Yang is going around, so he's a Democrat running for president. He's like, this is great. Let's just give people money, and so then the. The, the, the question, hey, uh, really? It'd be like knocking on the door. Uh, hey, what if, you know, hi, I'm, I'm Andrew Yang running for president. I have this thing. I'm going to give people money. Oh, okay. You're a Democrat. Okay, great. W- what if they use that money for private school tuition? Uh, sh- sorry, I got to go. Sorry, I got to run. Uh, would that be okay? No, I can't answer that question. I'm running. I got to run away. It's like, yes. So if it's good to give people money for anything, <laughs> I guess it's also got to be good to people give people government money if they want to use it toward private school tuition maybe maybe we should let andrew yang reframe this narrative for us i mean i'll I'll take it i'll take it listen bob yes just to just to stay choicy here because we're choicy but this has been a particularly choicy week although except professor mcclay um speaking to us about history but next week really i mean the father of the school choice movement in this country okay a lot of people would like to claim the mantle but dr howard fuller we are so privileged that we will be able to have dr howard fuller join us he's a professor of education founder of the institute for the transformation of learning at marquette university and if you know anything about school choice you know dr howard fuller uh, as a friend of mine told me when i saw her just last week she said every time i get depressed i just watch a howard fuller video and i feel rallied to get back and do the good work of providing more options for kids so our guest yeah. next week dr howard fuller absolutely can't wait apart from his green bay packer advocacy everything about him is on point and I would just also say that, uh, you know, I like to ask the hardest questions I can think of in an honest way to any guest I'm interviewing. But Fuller is a guy. I just love the guy so much. It's just hard. For, I, I, I just gush. I'm like embarrassed myself. But anyway, yep. We're look, I'm well, looking to I'll talk to I'll take care of that. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that brings us to the end of today's edition of The Learning Curve. We will be back next week, dear listeners. Can't wait to be with you again. Take care. Have a good week, Bob. See you later.